From Relativity and our Relativity One partners, this is Uncivil Procedure, the eDiscovery podcast. I'm Anna Srunian, Program Manager on the Event Marketing Team, and here is your host, Relativity Discovery Council and Legal Education Director, David Horrigan. Thank you, Ms. Srunian, and welcome to another episode of Uncivil Procedure, the eDiscovery podcast. Whether it's Hammurabi's Code, the Bible, the Torah, the Magna Carta, the U.S. Constitution, or the Bravo Network's programming guidelines for Project Runway, Rules and regulations have had an impact on the world throughout the ages. And in this episode, we celebrate the GDPR, otherwise known as the General Data Protection Regulation, and its 11 chapters, 99 articles, and of course, 173 recitals, sets the stage for data privacy and data protection, not just in Europe, but around the globe. We'll be talking to two special guests who are experts on this issue, but it won't be only that. We'll be discussing Palominos in Texas, taxis in Nottingham, even zombies on booze. But first, Ms. Rooney, and a word from our sponsor for this episode, Relativity One Partner, Control Risks. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure is brought to you by Relativity One certified partner, Control Risks. Control Risks is a specialist risk consultancy committed to helping clients build secure, compliant, and resilient organizations. An effective compliance program is an essential component of corporate strategy, and their team is committed to providing the tools and expertise to make yours a success. In the event of corruption, fraud, regulatory investigation, or cyber breach, Control Risks is prepared to handle your most challenging assignments involving electronic data and evidence. Thanks again, Ms. Rooney, and thanks, Control Risks. Now let's meet our two guests. We have got two legal experts from different parts of the world, Debbie Reynolds, and Chris Dale. First, Debbie Reynolds. Debbie, you serve a dual role as both director at Eimerstall Discovery Solutions and data privacy officer for the law firm Eimerstall. How did that come about? My role uh, at the law firm has basically evolved over time, uh, mostly because many of the things that I was doing already had to do with data privacy anyway. So I am the harbinger of all things Uh, secure uh, within the law firm having to do with data. Um, I'm dealing with clients that are all over the world and have to have known uh, data privacy laws anyway for my job. So it just was a natural progression for me to move into that role as well because I was already sort of wearing that hat uh, anyway. Excellent. Now I know you serve also as an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Continuing Studies Program. Can you perhaps answer one question for me? Yes. What in the world is a Hoya? I don't know. No one's ever told me what that is. Because <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> um, well, here's our fact-finding mission. Um, Georgetown University alumni out there listening to this, please tune in. And if you know what a Hoya is, please let us know. Uh, Debbie, we're looking forward to having you on this episode of Uncivil Procedure. And now we go across the pond to Chris Dale, founder of the eDisclosure Information Project. He is a qualified English solicitor, he's been a litigation partner, and for the past several years, the eDisclosure Information Project has been the source on eDisclosure in the UK. Please welcome Chris Dale. Chris, can you hear us from Oxford? I can indeed. Can you hear me? Loudly and clearly, sir. Um, So what brought you the change from being a litigation partner to founding the eDisclosure Information Project? Well, there was a 13-year intermission, in fact, between the two, in which I developed software, litigation software, uh, and worked with hands-on with data, uh, manipulating it between systems and so on, uh, as well as uh, lecturing and uh, and so on. Uh, So the move to 
writing about disclosure, as we call it in the UK, uh, came after two distinct phases before that, both of which, as it happened, proved to be quite good qualifications for writing about it, which is what I turned to about uh, 13 years ago. Um, so that uh, with the law under my belt from the first phase and discovery and technology under my belt for the second, uh, moving on to writing about it was uh, a natural move. Uh, originally only in the UK, uh, which is why my business is called the e-disclosure information project uh, and then to, to the US and other places after that. Chris, I know you've written about it and other people have talked about it. Is the nomenclature e-disclosure going to go back to what it was before they inserted that word in the rules and are we all going to be one big happy universe calling it e-discovery? I'd love to think so, um, but it, it, I fear it won't. The change was made in 1999 as part of a, a sweeping set of changes to the civil procedure rules. And the, it was that, that era when people thought that if you changed the name of something, you made it better. Uh, and that was, I fear, part of it. Uh, the other part, the more serious part, was the thought that uh, what mattered was what you disclosed to the other side. Um, that's, it was unfortunate timing because immediately afterward the volumes shot up and discovering stuff became the hard bit, the disclosure bit became the easy bit. Furthermore, it became an international concept immediately after that. And as you, as you say, we found ourselves out on a limb, the only ones in the world using that term. That means that whenever I write about it, I have to refer to disclosure oblique discovery. Uh, unless I'm specifically talking about the UK rules, in which case it's disclosure. To help us in our journey today as we discuss the GDPR and all relevant topics associated with it, we have a panel that's with us today. Um, we've got a new panelist. Don Sawyer is not only a lawyer, he is also an uh, account executive here at Relativity. Don, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm on the channel team. so. I uh, help our small and medium-sized partners uh, grow their business and uh, provide their services to both law firms, corporations, and government entities. Excellent. And returning, Daniel Pelk, Senior Manager, Law Firm Marketing here at Relativity, also a lawyer. Daniel, welcome to the broadcast again. Thanks, David. I feel like with me as always is Garth. Ah. <laughs> yes, Wayne, we'll remember that. <laughs> Um, you know, Chris and Debbie, we've talked about many things in the GDPR. There are the fines. There's the right to be forgotten. Um, we're going to kick things off today before we get into the nuts and bolts of the GDPR uh, by asking our two panelists today, what's the worst fine you've ever received? Sure. Um, mine was I was sitting outside in my car waiting for the uh, jewelry store to open to pick up my wife's engagement ring. And unbeknownst to me, uh, it was street cleaning or street sweeping here in Chicago, as they call it. And a police officer walked up to me while I was just sitting in my car and put the ticket right underneath <laughs> the uh, the windshield wiper. And as I tried, I was still an, I was a practicing attorney then, and made my argument. And he's like, "I didn't see it. Too bad." And he kept on walking. So, Don, you know that that's the worst thing you could have done. <laughs> it was it was it, it was an expensive day when you add everything up. So that was kind of my highest fine that I've ever had. When in doubt. Cry. <laughs> ah, it just doesn't Got work, it. though. I mean, maybe dudes crying might not be as compelling, but like, it's pretty. Sad. I've gotten out of a ticket by crying before. Make people uncomfortable. 
Daniel Pelk, how about your worst find? Mine is actually remarkably similar to Don's. A little bit later on, uh, I was married, had a small child. My daughter's now almost 21 years old, but she was probably six months old. And this is one of those times where my wife said, just pull in front of the mall. I'm just going to run in for a second. It's never a second. So (laughs) my daughter began to fuss and get upset. I was clearly in a no parking zone. But I had turned around in my seat, and I was trying to put a pacifier in her mouth. I was trying to keep her from exploding (laughs) while all the time believing my wife was actually going to be out in a minute. Well, the cop pulled up behind me and sat there and waited until he he found out that I wasn't paying attention to him. The lights go on, and he comes out and gives me a ticket. In a mall parking lot? In a mall parking lot with a crying child. I don't normally fight those, but I went in to go fight that one. Sure. They cut it in half, so. (laughs) Giving new definition to draconian, and Miss Sarunian brings up a good point. What was his jurisdiction to be able to pull you over in the mall parking lot for this transgression? I don't know. Well, those are no parking zones. It's a no parking zone, yeah. It it was listed as a no parking zone. I was clearly at fault. But, you know, there is, there's prosecutorial discretion. There has to be police officer discretion that I'm turning around trying to keep my kid from blowing out the windows. (laughs) Yeah, the crying baby exception to the rule ought to be applied here. Miss Sarunian, if you didn't cry your way out of it, was there a bad fine you ever got? You know, I've only been pulled over twice. I guess we're just talking about, I've gotten a million parking tickets, that's for sure, but you can't really get out of those. I've never been like physically handed a parking ticket before. But I was driving down in Mount, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Uh, I was driving down like our main road in the summer, going like 45 on a 25, which like not smart. But he pulled me over and I was like shaking and crying because it was the first time I'd ever gotten pulled over. And I didn't get the ticket. So, I mean, knock on wood, that doesn't happen ever again. Mine, of course, was through my own stupidity. I uh, took a right turn on green. Of course, it was one of those where you have to wait for the arrow, and it's a good law to allow pedestrians to cross the street. I was always religious about this thing, but this day, I let it go through. The one thing was, it was a few minutes after midnight, the police officer wrote the previous day on the ticket, making it an improperly sworn affidavit. So I'm feeling large. We're at a campus place the next day. I'm talking to this cop, like, explain the fact pattern. I'm like, hey, you think I can beat this one? He's like, no. I'm like, why not? Because I'm the guy who wrote you the ticket. (laughs) And the rest of this story takes too long for this broadcast, but uh, justice did prevail. I was represented by counsel and beat the rap, but uh, we'll get back to that story. Debbie Reynolds, a bad fine you have ever received? Uh, I've, let's see, not a bad fine. Almost a fine, but I actually got out of it. So... Um, I was on Lakeshore Drive driving, and they say that I was, quote-unquote, driving above the speed limit. I'm not sure. Everybody drives above yeah, the speed limit exactly. on Lakeshore. So they, so the cop stopped me. He said, you know that you were driving above the speed limit. And for whatever reason, my mother told me that I should always tell the police officer that I'm a prudent person. Oh. So I told him I am a prudent person, and I don't know what this word means. But he starts <laughs> laughing and tells me, he's like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> 
Let's go across the pond. Chris Dale, I know that you are always a law-abiding citizen following the Queen's rules and regulations, but any fines that you may or may not have received over the years? Well, sort of. I was once fined by HM Customs and Excise, our, our equivalent of the IRS, for failing to file a tax return. Uh, but I had, uh, and uh, on time. And it became clear that they'd invented a new taxpayer who had my name my address but a new a different reference number so a fictitious taxpayer uh, who happened to be me if you see what I mean uh, so we uh, complained about it and but they, the fines kept piling in and they're cumulative so every month they went up by a hundred quid and we got to twelve hundred pounds confident that I wouldn't actually have to pay it before they finally conceded uh, and uh, cancelled cancelled it all and agreed to pay our costs which I was quite pleased with really Ah, excellent. So not uh, a non-fine, a fine story. But it seems though we've all come out of it relatively unscathed. But um, let's talk about this subject of fines, Chris, for a moment under the GDPR. You were one of the early proponents of the idea that people were too obsessed with the fines and the walk up to the GDPR. You still feel that way? Uh, very much so. Uh, it's not that there aren't fines uh, or that there won't be more, but uh, it was the only thing anybody talked about. Uh, you may remember, David, that at uh, some relativity panel I did with you, I, I opened by asking the audience, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the letters at GDPR? And everybody said, fines. And I, it made me quite cross because a whole heap of other things in there, some good, some bad. Uh, and I, I, in interviews, you know those interviews I do, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I took to interrupting. Uh, and tearing off my microphone and, and going red in the face and saying, is that all you've got to talk about? Is, is the, your company's only contribution to this to talk about fines? And uh, people got quite upset, uh, quite naturally, about that. Um, there's so much else that needs to be done. Um, the, uh, together with a, a complete misunderstanding of what the regime is intended to be, the, the English Information Commissioner's Office kept emphasizing throughout that fines for the last resort. Uh, there was a whole graded step, uh, set of steps before you'd be fined for anything, uh, rather than the impression that many people gave that the slightest deviation from, from uh, policy uh, would uh, result in 4% of global turnover being levied against you. Um, those big numbers were there for Facebook uh, and Google, and we'll, we will see those big numbers, we are seeing those big numbers, uh, levied against the big companies. Uh, we may see uh, a, a steady increase in fines, but they will all be at the end of a trail of discussions, failings, whatever, or they will be of the kind that Facebook's rather good at, where it, it, uh, it pushes its luck. It's, it's not just a, a failure of duty, but a deliberate um, challenge, if you like, to, to regulators. They will get fined, and in a big way. Indeed. But um, that's, not, that, that's not what everybody was afraid of. They were afraid that ordinary middle-of-the-road clients were going to be fined for every slightest um, defect. Debbie, let's bring it back on this side of the Atlantic. And when you talk to your clients and when you've been working with people on data privacy issues, when Amor Stahl gets involved, um, do A, you see the obsession with fines as well, and B, what are they doing on a practical matter to uh, avoid those fines? I do see an obsession with fines. Um, in one way, I think it's good because, um, as you know, the EU, before the GDPR, 
had a pretty strong data privacy law before. But without the fines, it was sort of like, eh, well, whatever, you know, we break it, whatever. So I think putting the fines in the GDPR made data privacy a C-suite issue um, and gave it the attention that it needed, even though people are overly obsessed with fines. Um, the advice that I'm giving to people is, um, you know, first of all, a lot of the things that are um, touted about in GDPR are things that you probably should have been doing anyway. So sure thing. Probably shouldn't have been keeping people's data too long. You're probably over collecting things. You're probably keeping things too long. You're probably um, uh, not getting the proper consents for different things just because you could. And because a lot of the software that you're using may be collecting information that you may not even need. So a lot of it was kind of kicking the tires, you know, see what you see what you're collecting, figure out how your systems are working. Um, my first advice for, for anyone before they sort of rip their hair out and try to boil the ocean is uh, get rid of the stuff that you don't need. You know, minimize what you have to begin with, and then we'll start from there. Now, um, everyone's afraid of the GDPR and the data protection authorities, but uh, what about the big bad Federal Trade Commission? And I don't say that, uh, I say that jokingly because, you know, there's enforcement on this side. Your clients at all thinking about what the FTC can do? I think... Uh, People are kind of uh, peckish about what's going on with the FTC. So, as you know, the FTC wasn't for a while fully um, staffed. Uh, it is now. Uh, the FTC is not a lawmaking body. They can only follow the laws that are follow that are uh, enacted by Congress and through legislation. Um, we haven't yet seen them, you know. Uh, uh, throw the hammer at anyone, uh, even though some people, as we know, uh, big names uh, have been dallying with them for many years. Uh, so I think it's eventually going to happen, but, you know, I think people on this side of the pond have uh, been surprised that the FTC hasn't been a little bit more tough on uh, tech companies up to this point. Of course, Debbie, the FTC isn't the only game in town for data privacy in the United States either. The California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, was passed uh, very quickly last year. And uh, always when you pass laws, there are the laws of unintended consequences. Uh, what's happening with the CCPA as far as we know it's not going to take effect until 2020, but uh, are companies getting ready for that in the same way they got ready for GDPR? Oh, definitely. I would say orally so. Uh, people are really concerned. Um, the concern with the CCPA is obviously complying with the law in the state of California, but the thing that co corporations are really frightened about, and this is the reason why they're pushing uh, for there to be a sort of national data privacy law, is that they don't want uh, what's happening with the CCPA, uh, what happened with the uh, data pre breach notification law. So. In 2003, California was the first state to pass a uh, data breach notification law. And as of last year, um, all 50 states have a data, uh, data uh, breach notification law. The problem with those laws is they're different by every state. So sure. corporations don't, they want to prepare very, um, very well for the CCPA but they're also concerned about other states following California's lead as they have in the past and pass different legislation. So uh, in a way, the, the, the U.S. government is sort of between a rock and a hard place. So um, 
The CCPA is the first shot across the bow in the U.S. for a stronger consumer uh, facing or consumer beneficial uh, data privacy law where corporations want more of a business beneficial data privacy law. So it's kind of a, uh, it is is inevitable that it will need to happen at some point because they don't want different states to pass these different laws uh, like California has done, Uh, but it remains to be seen what that's going to look like and how long it's going to take. Thanks, Debbie. And of course, Chris, we have our conflicts of law issue over here where the 50 states disagree on laws. One of the ideas behind the GDPR was to harmonize uh, the laws and regulations of Europe instead of having the 1995 directive where the member states went off and did their own thing. The idea of the GDPR is to bring it all together in one happy Europe. Is that really happening? Well, it's not a very happy Europe at the moment, which is one one point, I think, here. Um, no, I don't think we'll see the, um, the degree of harmonization that was originally hoped for uh, in that there will be separate uh, enforcement um, and separate enforcement plans, as it were. Because those data protection authorities do have the right in each member state to craft legislation to go along with the GDPR. It's not really one homogeneous law and uh, regulation for the whole country. Absolutely not. And it's not just how the legislation is crafted, it's, it's, it's how enforcement is handled. Um, uh, it is, uh, it's possible, for example, that the UK has been less um, onerous than some, or will be less onerous than some of the, uh, the, the some other mainland European countries. France and Germany, for example, have always been stricter uh, than the UK has in what you can and can't do. And there's plenty of scope within the GDPR for uh, different levels or in different ways of enforcing things. That's left to the discretion of the uh, of the individual authorities. And w- we will see divergences with any luck. At some point, there will be a, a supranational ruling on various points, uh, which will uh, bring everybody into line. But there will be a long period, I think, of, of different levels, at least of enforcement, uh, before we get there. But Chris, uh, unlike the United States, and although there may have been historical conflicts over the years, you don't run into the issues of England and Wales and Scotland trying to pass different privacy laws, do you? Uh, no, because England and Wales uh, well, uh, at, at one level, they share jurisdiction. They, they share legislation anyway. Um, uh, uh, I think you'll see a uniform picture. Uh, perhaps that's the only thing you will see a uniform picture of in, in the whole of the, the UK at the moment. Uh, yes, Scotland has different different laws, different court systems. It's a different jurisdiction. Um, but at the level we're talking about, uh, I don't think we'll see significant differences between how the GDPR is handled. And of course there's the elephant in the room we haven't mentioned yet, Brexit, but uh, the UK has agreed that uh, it'll comply with GDPR whatever happens with Brexit, correct? Yes, the GDPR is agreeing to an awful lot, sorry, the UK is agreeing to an awful lot of things at the moment, which I suspect our next Prime Minister, whoever he, and I think it will be a he, uh, may be, uh, will cheerfully ditch if it suits his ambitions. But. Um, uh, the principle, the assurance so far, uh, is that we will comply. Uh, meanwhile, work is seeping out to Dublin, for example, uh, that should have, should have been coming to us because people really don't know, don't know what to trust. So it's, Brexit's been uh, bad news at that level. Data flows are going to Ireland. Uh, Ireland has just, for example, set up a direct electricity net, uh, connection to France in order to bypass the UK. 
um, and it won't just be electricity, it will be all sorts of other things where the UK simply gets bypassed because nobody knows what's happening. Well, we've set the stage now with our discussion of the GDPR for game time in this episode of Uncivil Procedure. So we now move on to our first game, Stump the Panel. As we've discussed the obsession with fines under the GDPR, we always have to remember that European data protection authorities aren't the only ones issuing fines. Because we know he's not obsessed with fines, we turn to Chris Dale with a Stump the Panel question on fines. Chris? You'll be asking your question to our panelist, Daniel Pelk. Here it is. What famous U.S. basketball player was fined $25,000 for wearing the number 45 on his jersey instead of the number he wore at the beginning of his career? Wow. You asked the wrong person. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with, well, I, I'm going to go with Dennis Rodman. That's actually pretty good, yeah. Would you, would you like a, a, another go at that? Yes. <laughs> Since Dennis Rodman is clearly not the answer. Shall I give you a hint? Good guess. Please. The year was 1995. <laughs> that yeah, that doesn't help. Doesn't help. <laughs> it's the same vintage. It is. Uh, Alan Iverson. Well, another hint, another hint. Sure. The hiatus was to play baseball. Oh, um... Do you need some help? Uh, no, I keep Come thinking on. of Deion Sanders. No. Shaquille no. O'Neal? No. Chicago. Oh, Michael going Jordan. to be excommunicated. Oh, yes. Yes. I, you know, and the first thing I thought of was, well, maybe it's Michael Jordan. Well, it couldn't be that easy, but it turns out it was that easy. It was. <laughs> they warned us. Dennis Rodman was a good guess, though. It was. It was, it a, was a good guess. guess. Michael Jordan was away for, from the game for 16 months and gave everybody a surprise when he turned up wearing the number 45 instead of the iconic 23 on his jersey. Uh, that was because it was a tribute to the number he originally wanted when he played basketball in high school. And he what was, was the another $5,000 for wearing the wrong color shoes during that same game. I get the feeling that's what he'd tip people in a restaurant, so I'm not sure that's <laughs> as big At a deal. At his old steakhouse. Exactly. And Perhaps. we thought GDPR fines were excessive. <laughs> and, and, and for silly reasons, the wrong color shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to another topic. And that's the right to be forgotten. Whether you call it the right to be forgotten or the right to erasure, I think that's Article 45, maybe? Um, anyway, forgetting things is something that happens to all of us, and it's not only under the GDPR. For a question on forgetting things, we turn to Debbie Reynolds, who will be asking Don Sawyer. Okay, Don, are you ready? Unfortunately, yes. Okay. <laughs> What is the most forgetful age group according to a recent survey? Can I get a hint? Oh, it's too early for hints. Okay. <laughs> uh, I will say... Come on. 20 to 25-year-olds. Damn you. Damn you. <laughs> well, what, Debbie? Are you going to give him that? <laughs> uh, more. Give me a little bit more. A little bit more. Uh, college students? Um, uh, think of a group name like, like a generation, like Gen X. Oh, baby boomers, the millennials. Ding yes. ding ding ding. Yes, Don. That's right. I I was really just going back to my college days of drinking again, and <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Do you say most forgetful or most forgettable? Most. 
because I heard forgettable and now I'm offended. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh Lord. Let's see. So in a recent survey of 800 adults, millennials self-reported as the most forgetful age group. Uh, they were in fact significantly more likely to forget what day it is uh, uh, as opposed to older generation like the over 65 um, and the cause may be likely stress as a culprit and also excessive multitasking and not enough sleep I'm gonna go with uh, everything but stress everything but stress yeah, yeah. and also maybe nobody wears watches I have my calculator watch that everybody likes and it tells me the date Wednesday the year month and day. Don, tell me that's a Casio watch. It is. It is a Casio data bank. Nice. I was admiring it before. I thought, you know, that took me back to fourth grade when the coolest kids in the classroom had one of those, and now I instantly need one again. Daniel Pelk, <laughs> cool is in the eye of the beholder. That's it is, right. And that's cool. Exactly. I mean, as Eventually, a, of course, it's the older people who forget things. That's what, what most people say. The um, There was said to be a, a stair lift that was going to be marketed, but it wasn't. Uh, under the name, I think, Swift Seat. And the idea was that it could get you get you upstairs before you'd forgotten what you were going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a millennial, I feel like, yes, I am more forgetful than I would have expected myself to be. But with all of the technology and stuff that we have, it's almost impossible to be forgetful if you're organized and diligent. Like, yes, maybe I wake up one day and think it's Thursday when it's actually Tuesday, but... I wear a watch every day and have like everything in my calendar. So I don't know. I just I somewhat agree, but disagree with why we're forgetful. They feel like millennials, millennials get a bad rap. You say for sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, we deserve it. Yeah. I, quite frankly, like <laughs> entitlement. That's definitely like a thing. Yes, but I don't know. To I do think we get a bad rap. The physicality will catch up with you at some point. I used to have a mind like a steel trap, and I have a mind like a steel cage. <laughs> so it 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 will it will get worse. Great. Enjoy. Great. So we're just starting much younger. Exactly. But the good news is you won't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a good thing. Ignorance is bliss. And uh, thank you, Miss Runian, for that spirited defense of the millennial generation. No problem. Our third panelist. Now, Ms. Sarunian has graciously volunteered because we've got two panelists on this episode. We'll welcome Constantine Pappas back for another episode. Anna Sarunian, you're the new Constantine Pappas. And Chris Dale is going to attempt to stump you. i got big shoes to fill. Here's the question. In 2009, a company's new catchphrase has an unfortunate translation uh, from assume nothing, which is what they intended, to do nothing in several countries around the world. What kind of company was it? Not a clue. Can I get a hint? Well, I'm told, but I'll have to take um, somebody else's word for this, that it's also a shot in billiards. A shot in billiards? So I'm told. Like the type of shot. There's right. multiple shots in billiards? I think there'd have to be. Like corner pocket? Yeah. Type of thing. Right, exactly, exactly. That's all I know. <laughs> Chris Dale, she may need some help. There's a, a, another hint, but uh, again, I'm not convinced this is going to help very much. Once upon a time, they gave away free toasters. Do you guys know? No. Done? I do not. Come on. I, I'm, I'm really thinking here. 
Give me some help here. Debbie, do you know? Uh, I would not have guessed from that clue, no. Do no, what, this, an- is, this, is, this is, because you're a millennial, you would not know this. See, mm-hmm. discrimination. Miss mm-hmm. <laughs> Ronian's got a good point. Age discrimination is a vile, vile offense. Um, let's see, how could we help, Chris? Any thoughts in your part of the world on this one? Was I close with Corner Pocket? You were, you were very close with that, actually. Assume nothing to do nothing. No, I, I can't think of any other clue that would short of actually uh, giving it away. Just actually give it telling to me. That rivers have these. Rivers have them. A river... Bank. Bank shot. Uh, there it is. Bank shot? Yes. Is the company? Danny Pelk no. is bringing it home. <laughs> it's a typo. It's, it's business. working with Mr. Rooney and Mr. Pelk here. You're on the yeah, just name, name on the bank. Oh, I'm not. I've got nothing more than that. Any That's bank? All I have. Any bank. Chase. No, but should, That's should not, we? That's should a we? Good guess. Bank of America. <laughs> it was HSBC Bank. Uh, they're the sixth largest wealth man- wealth manager in the world, and they had a campaign with a tagline: "Assume nothing." Uh, that was meant to make everybody think creatively and ask insightful questions. Uh, but all that was subverted because it translated into do nothing in several languages, uh, which obviously is not great as, a, as an advertising tagline. Uh, HSBC had a, a £10 million rebranding campaign after that, uh, and its new motto is the world's local bank. Mm, pretty forgetful campaign, I'd have to say. <laughs> I <don't> say. <laughs> That's the equivalent of having just don't do it as opposed to just do it. Well, the cultural (laughs) nuances behind some of those ad campaigns are really interesting. My dad grew up in Argentina, and in the 1960s, the Chevrolet Motor Company released the Nova, which in Spanish means it doesn't go. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, thinking those things through from a cultural reference perspective can be pretty important when you're having a multi-million or billion-dollar ad campaign. That's why we're in marketing. That's right. All right. Are we ready for our next game? Excellent. This one, of course, is Discover the Truth. And uh, we've got a new twist on it this episode. As usual, Ms. Sarunian's going to reveal the correct answers at the end of the game, but because we have two guests, one from the United States and one from the United Kingdom, we want to give each contestant an equal chance. Ms. Sarunian, would you care to explain our new rules for this episode? Of course. All right, so Debbie, Daniel is going to recite four bizarre laws or regulations from the United Kingdom. Three are real, but one is fake, and your goal is to identify which case is fake. Okay. We should point out that to warn our guests, this is nothing that you'd ever see on a bar exam, the professional bar training course, the legal practical course in the UK. Uh, So the pressure's on. They're truly bizarre. Daniel Pell. And they are real because I've actually read the uh, the law themselves. Okay. First one, placing a postage stamp bearing the monarch's head upside down in an envelope is an act of treason. Second one, may not import potatoes into England or Wales if you have reasonable suspicion that those potatoes are Polish. <laughs> okay. Third one. Taxi drivers in Nottingham are not permitted to carry intoxicated livestock to any destination. Okay. The fourth one, any whale or large sturgeon caught in any waters in the UK is automatically the property of the Queen. 
Should I go through those once more, or do you have it? So you want to know which one is Which one's fake. the fake one? This is actually difficult. Let me say um, the treasonous postage stamp. Nisarunian? Uh, close, but no cigar. It was actually the uh, intoxicated livestock one that is fake. Okay, okay. So <laughs> Is it that they can take, it. like, not intoxicated livestock? Uh, it wasn't spelled out specifically. <laughs> was there a breathalyzer or something? Yeah, how do they tell if they're drunk or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They Christelle, walk alive. have you ever known anyone who put the queen's head upside down on a postage stamp? Well, we don't use stamps. I, I can't remember how many years it is since I last put a stamp on an envelope, so uh, I, I'm not an expert. Um, what you say is strictly right. It is illegal. Um, I can't imagine that anybody would seek to enforce it in any way. All right. Now we're going to turn to Don Sawyer and Chris Dale. Batter up with Don Sawyer. Okay, Chris, we have four of them again. Uh, three are real, one is fake. The first one is, it shall be an unlawful criminal offense to sell onion rings resembling normal onion rings, but made from diced onions without disclosing they're diced. The second one, horses defined as Palomino by the Palomino Horse Breeders Association shall be permitted to compete in licensed Texas thoroughbred races but it shall be a violation of the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act to enter any quarter horse, Tennessee walking horse, Danish warm blood, Swedish warm blood, or Romanian sport horse in said license event. The third one, neither containers of wine nor any label of such container may contain the word, words Collins or zombie. And then finally the fourth. This is a long one, so listen, listen closely. In the U.S. state of Arkansas, Arkansas Code 1-4-105 provides for the only true pronunciation of the state's name, calling it for to be, one, pronounced in three syllables, two, in the French form adopted from Native Americans, three, with a final, with a final silent S and the A in each syllable pronounced with the Italian sound, and finally, proclaiming that the pronunciation with an accent on the second syllable with a non-silent silent S is an innovation to be discouraged, which I'm guessing is Arkansas? <laughs> ah, I think you're right, sir. Okay. Mm. I think the horse one is just too complicated to have been invented for the purposes of, of this. Uh, I think I've heard the Arkansas one somewhere. I, I'm going to go with the onion rings. That's a good guess, and I maybe would have picked that one myself, but the horse one was actually the fake one. Well, congratulations to anybody who drafted, who, 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 to whoever it was that drafted. <laughs> you have a stiff, officially stumped Chris Dale. Wow, we have stumped the panel. Dun, dun, dun. And we've even stumped the guest and discovered the truth. We have succeeded. Don, I think you were right on that one. I think that was a Kansas versus Arkansas debate over who pronounces it correctly, who's going to use the French, and who's going to use the English. That's what I was. That's what I was guessing, but I, I wasn't sure. But uh, Chris, just to let you know that the onion one was my favorite one. I think <laughs> that's a, a law that we should really uh, follow. Uh, I am a fan of the onion rings, and I checked it out again today, and it's it's still up on uh, the web as as accurate. So I'm glad to know that. Are there onion rings made of diced onions? I don't think I've ever. Well, seen What about that. like a blooming mm. onion? Uh, oh, that's real though. Yeah. That qualifies because that's actually kind of good. I oh, think yeah. we're talking about Burger King and McDonald's. Chop, 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 chop. Mm. Put them in there, deep fry them. I don't think I've ever looked. Maybe I need to pay more attention. I, I don't typically go have onion rings at Burger King, but maybe it's worth a field trip. 
Yes, yes. slice, dice, and cross-section that, just like you were in college biology, exactly. and you'll see the innards. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. And Ms. Rooney, and another word from our sponsor, Control Risk. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure has been brought to you by Control Risks, a Relativity One certified partner. Control Risks has 36 offices in 26 countries and more than 20 Relativity certifications on staff, including six Relativity One certified pros. In addition to e-discovery and e-disclosure services, their portfolio includes multiple concurrent monitorships of large multinational banks and an international petrochemical company. Control Risk leverages AI and analytics to identify compliance issues, remediate weaknesses in internal controls, and develops custom solutions to integrate structured and unstructured data sources for analysis. Trust their team with your most complex investigations and litigations. And now for this episode's predictions. What will be the next British invasion? Daniel Pelk. I'm going to predict that the terminology barrister and solicitor will come to the U.S. and the uh, attorneys in the U.S. will divide and we will finally have the term solicitation rescued from its bad reputation. (laughs) 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 Lawyers on the streets in the evening from Daniel Pelk. Don Sawyer, your prediction on the next British invasion. I should have talked to Daniel before this. Uh, Mine was right along the same lines, that uh, the barrister wigs of the UK will be required dress for all new attorneys in the US. (laughs) I think we look good in wigs, don't you? I'm ready for one right now. Yeah. Debbie Reynolds, a prediction on the next British invasion. We've had the Beatles. What's next? That's a good question. Maybe Mushy Peas will Mm. (laughs) will, uh, overtake America and we'll love them all of a sudden. I'm not sure that will happen, but who knows? Mushy Peas. Now, Chris, I assume you're not going to bring us back to the War of 1812 and the invasion and the burning of the White House, but um, what do you think will be the next British invasion? Well, I'm going to go back to what's already been said about solicitors, be barristers, and Whigs and predict uh, it's not really an invasion point, but um, that that distinction will disappear over here and those two professions will be merged uh, and that wigs will disappear. So um, uh, if you take it on, well, fine, but I think we'll have left it by then. (laughs) All right, we've got lots of wigs. Ms. Sarunian, care to weigh in on the next British invasion or invasion from anywhere for that matter? Martians? Yeah, we're going to Mars, seriously. Going to Mars. Yeah, NASA says we're going back to the moon, then to Mars. I mean, I guess I'll take a stab off, like, from what Debbie said. Maybe say, like, Sunday roast will become a thing here, too. Go back <laughs> to the roast. Yeah, totally. We'll bring a hot in. pot and a crock pot yep. um, resurgence. That could happen. Yep. The Instapot. Yeah, Instapot. <laughs> yeah, but, like, a, yeah, like the that will totally 2019 happen. version of it. <laughs> exactly. With the millennials being so busy and tired or whatever. We got time just, for crock pots. Yeah, we, exactly. had, we had Instant Pots now. Exactly. And air so, fryers. That could totally happen. I agree. All right, Debbie Reynolds, Data Privacy Officer at Imer Stahl. Thank you for being with us here on Uncivil Procedure. Thank you, David. This is lovely. And of course, Chris Dale, thank you for joining us across the sea from the eDisclosure Information Project. Thanks for being part of Uncivil Procedure. Thank you for inviting me. And of course, our panelists, Don, welcome to the broadcast. Daniel, thanks as always. And Ms. Sarunian, credits for the team who puts this together. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Uncivil Procedure. Our Relativian panelists were Don Sawyer and Daniel Palk. Our guests were Debbie Reynolds of Imer Stahl and Chris Dale, founder of the eDisclosure Information Project. 
Our host was David Horrigan. Our sponsor was Control Risks. Thanks to a few folks who made Uncivil Procedure possible and civil. Nicholas Matejchak, sound and recording engineer. Sam Bach, Blair Heidenreich, and Mary Rectress were the masterminds behind some of the material you heard today. Tammy Yosasovic is our casting director. Carl Sandrol created our theme music. Gus Tsatsakis created our visual brand. Brendan Ryan is our podcast creator and executive producer. Sean Gaines is our podcast marketing overlord. I'm Anna Serunian, your David Horgan Wrangler, and we'll see you next time on Uncivil Procedure. Continue the Uncivil Procedure conversation on social media via Twitter and Instagram. Just follow us at UncivPropodcast. Tag your thoughts with the hashtag UncivilProcedure and connect with our panelists in the Uncivil Procedure discussion group on the Relativity community. I flubbed that first one. I thought that was no, good. no, I thought it was good. Okay, there was a word stumble, but if we're going to go with it, let's go with it. Okay. Yeah, that was good. Did I hear you say the Magna Carta? <laughs> <laughs>